Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. But Jeff, I was curious, um, you are a professor of theology of biblical studies and uh, I was curious how you felt that this was yours how you felt that calling and also how you discovered your religion is that something that came from your parents or it's something that you discovered early in your life yeah uh, I was raised in a uh, Protestant church sort of a, a high uh, a high church culture uh, and during my teenage years, I actually became a hippie. Uh, I played in a lot of bands. Uh, and during that time, I uh, experienced a crisis in my life. Uh, a lot of things happened. And uh, uh, so long story short, I ended up moving to Boston in 1982 to attend the Berklee College of Music. And it was there that I got into the Pentecostal or was exposed to the Pentecostal church through a Bible study that was taught down the door, down the hall from my dorm room. And subsequently, I mean, I can talk more about the experience itself. Uh, I became Pentecostal and over the, over the period of several years, I felt drawn to campus ministry. Uh, I was a full-time campus minister for a couple of years and interacting with college students, I found that pat answers weren't working. So I would constantly go back and research to find better answers to some of their probing questions. And so over time, I felt uh, uh, a leading, a calling to become a professor. It was a long uh, convoluted process. I had worked at MIT for several years, uh, worked at Harvard uh, for several years, and uh, started to go, I, I attended Harvard University Extension School starting in the early 1990s while also working at MIT during the day. And over time, I really got hooked on uh, classical studies, biblical studies, 
I went on to for my master's uh, degree at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and so it was sort of a, a something I knew that I wanted to do. I felt the Lord was leading me in that direction, uh, but it was sort of a long process. Uh, yeah, I studied law, and a lot of my professors they were trained or do at least had some experience with theology and they always came in and said you guys are the only other people by the book right that that read the book and that are determined by the book that have to um have a certain amount of of, of what you're going to experience already predefined in the book in coded law or in 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 the bible and I always, I never really understood this, right? I was 18, 19 years old. I'm like, what, what, what do they mean by this? Why is it different than, say, physics? Because there's a lot of coded law, but in physics already, there's all this algebra. I never understood the difference. So it took me a while to, to, to get there. Have you, you always wanted to be a professor or for some time you thought you might be a pastor and uh, you might go and do a slightly different career? Yeah, great question. So uh, when I was younger, uh, I can remember a, a distinct moment when the rector of the church I was attending was teaching. And I felt this impression that one day I was either going to be a professional musician or I was going to be involved in, in ministry uh, full time. I, I'll never forget when I ended up to trying to decide what I was going to do with my career, I... Uh, applied to a local community college in the Finger Lakes area of upstate New York, where I grew up. And I had decided, so many people told me that it's too difficult to make a career as a musician. And so I fell back on some, some interest. I decided I was either going to be an astronomer or a microbiologist. So I decided to go for microbiology. And I can remember the day that I was at the orientation there at the community college all kinds of activities going on. And a, a, a young man that I had graduated from high school with came running up to me, all excited that he had signed up for the music uh, program. And I thought to myself, you know, that's really what I wanna do. I'd let everyone talk me out of it. And so that day I switched my whole uh, curriculum to music. So I ended up uh, graduating from there and then, of course, moved to, to Boston. But during that time, I started reading the New Testament. Uh, various uh, friends of mine started witnessing to me of the Christian faith and so forth. So um, eventually, as I mentioned, I moved to Boston. And the defining, really the defining time for me was that Bible study taught at Berkeley uh, College of Music. And... Uh, Shortly thereafter, I was uh, baptized uh, in Jesus' name by immersion there at the church. And uh, a short amount of time later uh, at the church, I think it was, I think it was like a Friday evening, uh, I came to the altar. Uh, there was an evangelist who was speaking. It was like the third or fourth night that I'd gone up to the front at the mm -hmm. altar call. And it was there that... Uh, you know, I was very introverted. Uh, I, I wasn't really accustomed, uh, based on my own church tradition, to the Pentecostal style of worship. And a lot of people were praying with me, uh, uh, 
for me to seek the what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. And I found it very distracting. It was hard to concentrate with everyone uh, talking into my ear and laying hands on me for that experience. Well, I, I came to a, a kind of a breaking point that at that moment where I said, Lord, I'm going to forget all these people around me, this, all these distractions. I'm just going to concentrate on you. And I started to uh, just review my life. And I started to just think about how unbelievably good the Lord had been to me and brought me through some bad, bad situations, uh, uh, close calls with death and so forth. And at that moment, I uh, started to, to cry uh, and... I felt the presence of the Lord and started speaking in tongues, um, just like a like a geyser, just speaking like in a torrent. Uh, this language that I had not had not studied, not learned. I don't know what the language was, and I had a visionary experience of the Lord Jesus, and I started to climb up the altar, and then I took off running laps around the church. Just I felt. Uh, just so free and so empowered. And, uh, you know, as someone who came from out of the drug culture, um, this was like absolutely unbe unbelievable experience. And it was so out of character for me uh, as a sh very shy person to, to do that. And uh, that, that experience of being baptized uh, both in water, you know, for my sins to be, washed away and then to to receive the the spirit of of jesus inside of me in that kind of demonstrative way was uh a huge turning point in my life i can imagine this this sounds it's just marvelous it's it's something i think most people including me don't know enough about the pentecostal church we we might know some impressions from there's an evangelist on Brazilian TV, usually they speak Portuguese, it seems, but it's very successful down in, in, in Brazil. And I know it's slightly different in terms of dogma, but also in, in execution. So um, the, the usually the, the amount of water, right, for baptism is usually very small. I remember that for my children, it was just like a little bit of water, right? It was a Protestant church. I think the Pentecostal, it's a pool, right? You literally, you're completely drowning in, in water for like a few seconds, right? Yeah, or a, a tank. It was a baptismal tank uh, at the front of the church that they would immerse you in and then bring you back up. And you, you just mentioned that the speaking in tongues, it's something that I've never heard before outside of the Pentecostal church. And from what I understand, it's, 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 it's a revelation of Christ, right? But it's also, it's something in that moment. A lot of other Protestant churches or Catholicism, they don't seem to have that. I don't know if it, it, it is it, do you think it's something they, is the, the, this common experience that triggers it? Um, is it suppressed in other churches? Um, why is the Pentecostal church so successful in, 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 in starting this, right? With some of their believers, many of their believers. Yeah, I, I think, Part of the answer to that is the expectation that 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 is going to happen and that the speaking in tongues is a sort of a, an exterior sign, so to speak, of, of this interior experience. And it, the name Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday, uh, 
goes back to, well, uh, Acts chapter 2. That was the second volume, the sequel that Luke wrote in the New Testament. And the, the church, the birthday of the church was on that day, the day of Pentecost. It was the Feast of Weeks. And so many Jewish uh, pilgrims, people from all over the what's called the diaspora, uh, were present for that feast. And that's when the early uh, followers of Jesus met in an upper room, uh, about 120 of them, and, and were, and were in, in this prayer mode when uh, the Holy Spirit uh, fell. This is, uh, you know, after Jesus's uh, death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Holy Spirit fell, and all, all 120 people started to speak in these languages they hadn't learned. And uh, there were people from various parts of the Mediterranean world who actually understood the languages they were, they were speaking. Um, and so that that be, so when when someone says they're Pentecostal, they gravitate towards that experience of Pentecost, uh, including the, the the gift of the Spirit with with speaking in tongues. Yeah, I feel the the Holy Spirit from 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 my reading of both the Old and New Testament. It's not getting a lot of love in many modern interpretations, right? So the Holy Spirit in, in modern Christianity, but most Protestants and most Catholics, they would say, well, it's the Holy Trinity, right? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're like, but well, what is it, right? So from, from a logical perspective, I know this is not necessarily logical. And then in the Old Testament, it kind of gets, it's kind of clumped together with the angels, I feel, sometimes. So there isn't, there isn't a lot with people they don't pay a lot of attention to the Holy Spirit. From my point of view, you know much better. Why does the Pentecostal church does that, and what role does the Holy Spirit play? Yeah, so the Holy Spirit uh, is more than simply like a force or something like that. It's actually the uh, presence of, it sounds sort of paradoxical, but the presence of the absent Jesus. So Jesus ascended into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, he sent his spirit down upon the awaiting believers. Uh, so, yeah, so the Holy Spirit is the, the actual presence of Jesus now that he is reigning in the, in the, in the cosmos. He's uh, the exalted king. Uh, he sends his spirit down to live and dwell within uh, believers. So it's like a messenger, like an, like an active messenger between Jesus and us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say it's his, it's his presence. It's his it's uh, uh, his essence. It's the spirit the spirit that indwelt him when he walked the earth has now come into believers. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know that we're that now we're a God or something like that. In the same way that. Uh, I would claim Jesus is and was, uh, but so you might think of it as maybe a, a portion of his a being, a portion of his spirit that infills us. I mean, it's him, but we don't have, like Paul said in Colossians, you know, the fullness of uh, the Godhead bodily. We, you know, we, we don't have an unlimited supply where, we, you know, we could somehow claim that we're God or something like that. But uh, does that does that make sense? Yes, um, I mean, I 
I don't know enough about it, but I've, I've, I've studied a lot. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm still early in that process of learning. You, you, in the process of your studies, you learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, is that correct? Yes, yes. These languages are they like study languages, like for most people, it's Latin, right? So they, they, they read some Latin and because it's, it's not a really active language anymore. But Hebrew is, right? And uh, like, well, there's two Greek versions. There's the ancient Greek and the modern Greek. Um, are you using them actively? Yes, um, I'm not fluent in modern Hebrew or modern Greek. I'm actually working on bettering my modern uh, Greek. I haven't formally studied modern Greek. It's mostly been ancient. Uh, but uh, yeah, so as part of my uh, educational process, I've Greek has always been my primary second language. I first studied uh, classical Greek uh, as an undergraduate at Harvard Extension School and have continued to cultivate my knowledge of Greek. I'm a, I'm an, I consider myself a, uh, always a student, uh, not a master, but always a student of, of Greek in particular. I love to teach it. Um, Hebrew has always been my weaker of, of my two biblical languages. Of course, uh, Aramaic is a sort of a relative of Hebrew. They're very similar. So uh, my focus is primarily in New Testament and other early uh, texts, uh, Greek texts. Um, so, so yeah, I teach, I teach Greek. I used to teach both Greek and Hebrew at the seminary at Urshan Graduate School of Theology, alternating years. And then we hired a specialist in Hebrew Bible. And I told him, why don't you take over Hebrew and I'll focus on Greek. And so uh, one, it might be of interest to you to know that along the lines of, you mentioned, you know, speaking Greek, speaking modern Greek, uh, I, I've adopted a, an approach. I didn't learn Greek this way. I learned Greek in the traditional sort of grammar translation approach that most people do. But uh, several years ago, I encountered uh, a scholar, uh, 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 Randall Booth, and Randall Booth is a is here in the teaching of so-called dead languages like Greek and, and ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, and based upon second language acquisition research, it's been demonstrated that the best way to learn an ancient so-called dead language, whether it's you know Latin or whatever, is to learn it the same way that we intuitively learned our first language through trial and error. Uh, and interacting, you know, with our siblings or parents and so forth. So I, I actually spent some time uh, in a session, a workshop several years ago, put on by the Biblical Language Center, which is based out of uh, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and learned this technique of teaching the language uh, for communication purposes, so that one not only studies the ancient grammar, but learns to think in the language and converses uh, in the language. And it's actually been uh, uh, revolutionary for my, my Greek teaching. Uh, students love it. And it's not common to hear a, Greek, a student of Greek say, I love it. You know, a lot of them find it very uh, tedious and, and unpleasant, but uh, this approach has been very, very successful. Uh, 
uh, people learn to think in Greek, and they want to continue their Greek studies even after the course is over. I'm very jealous. Um, so those are languages, maybe not Aramaic, but Hebrew, Greek, um, and Arabic is what, what I'm really after um, for the next 10 years. How much difference is there between what, say, the Hebrew that's used in the Bible and the modern Hebrew? So, I, so there is a, quite a difference in modern English, and that's what's used in most translations in, in, in the Bible, right? Especially for the Old Testament. But it's understandable, but nobody would go out there and talk to their friends like this. It sounds silly, right? That's not, what's wrong with you? Uh, is that the same for Hebrew and ancient Hebrew and Greek, or is there a huge difference in between? Yeah. So, again, uh, keep in mind that I'm not a Hebrew Bible specialist, um, sure. though I have studied the language and studied it even, even into my doctoral program. But my understanding is that modern Hebrew is basically... I don't want to say it's an artificial language, but it, it, so it was during the late, again, my, my knowledge of this is a bit scanty, but during the late 19th century, uh, there was a sort of a revival in interest uh, in, in, in uh, interest in Hebrew. And so, I mean, to take an ancient language and then apply it to a modern setting requires some updating because there's so many parts of reality that didn't exist back then. So my understanding, and I can't remember the name of the great scholar who was largely responsible for essentially creating modern Hebrew, but he took a, a lot of loan words from other languages and sort of converted them into Hebrew. And so that's an oversimplification, but so modern Hebrew is in essence, ancient Hebrew with a lot of uh, updates uh, to make it, usable, applicable to our modern culture and technology. Yeah, and that also applies for, for Greek. I know there's several different versions of Greek, ancient Greek. I know there is the one that Homer actually wrote and, and conversed in, and the old, the old verses of the old, really old Greece, and then there is the one around Socrates, right? So around the turn of the century, until the turn of the century, and then we have the modern Greek, I guess. Is that is my understanding correct, or I'm, I'm just an idiot? Well, scholars are de debate to what degree ancient Greek and modern Greek are, are still the same language, or, uh, you know, where there's been various phases, or is it actually a bit of a different language? So yeah, Homer was written in archaic Greek, uh, well, even even Homer, uh, we d can detect different dialects. Uh, I mean, there's the a theory that H Homer himself uh, basically collected a lot of uh, tradi oral traditions over time, which uh, you know reflect a number of different dialects. But then you've got you know classical Greek, uh, which is sort of the apex, the high point. Then you have uh, what's called uh, kine or kine, koine. There's a lot of ways to pr uh, pronounce it depending on your pronunciation scheme, but that means common, common Greek. So the the Greek that was spread is is a result of the conquest of Alexander the Great and his armies, where now a lot of people across uh, the 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 Mediterranean world uh, had picked up Greek as a second or third language. Uh, I suppose it became the lingua franca of the day, kind of like English is in, in our world today. And you have more formal versions of English 
and then more street versions. Well, I won't go into the whole history. You have Byzantine Greek and then modern Greek. And so, again, it depends on some almost some scholars see it as almost a distinct evolution of of almost a different languages. Others will say, no, it's one language. Greek has always been Greek. It's just gone through different eras and phases. Yeah. One of these things, and I really want to hopefully not torture, but I definitely want to pick your brain about that. There is things about the Bible and about the places in the New Testament and how it's been interpreted that always I couldn't fully understand. One of those sayings is, and I know this is one of the main themes of Christianity, is that Christ died for our sins. And I, I do kind of know what that means, but I also don't know. I think I always feel there is lots of implied meanings and I only got one out of 10. And I'm, I'm, I feel like I miss out on the nine out of 10. So I, I, I know what it literally means, but I don't understand all the other nine meanings. So maybe you can help me and us understand a little more what, what actually, what makes it such a core statement for Christianity? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a vast and a rich topic, but it's, I think it's a critical, it is a critical topic because that's the central confession of the Christian faith is that Christ died for our sins and and rose and rose from the dead. Uh, there's so many ways to approach it. Probably the best, I think, might be to go back to the so-called Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. Uh, and the, the notion of, of atonement uh, is deeply rooted in, uh, in Judaism. The notion that, you know, if someone... If you commit a sin, you commit uh, uh, something that violates God's holy character and principles. Someone has to pay for that. And so, uh, in the in the Jewish scriptures, a uh, they would celebrate various festivals, including the Day of Atonement. So, a uh, an, an animal, uh, a lamb that had to have all kinds of qualifications. Uh, to make sh uh, ensure that it was uh, sort of a perfect sacrifice uh, would be slaughtered. Uh, and, you know, this, this actually goes back. I mean, you can, if you're familiar with the, uh, the Torah to uh, the Passover lamb, the Exodus experience where uh, the, the Israelites were to, were to kill a, a lamb and sprinkle the, the blood on the doorpost so that the, you know, the, death angel wouldn't uh, strike uh, anyone dead in the household. So uh, in Christian theology, particularly the New Testament, you find uh, this, this notion, which is spelled out more, more clearly perhaps in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, but you see it elsewhere, the whole notion that Jesus is is this sort of he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That's actually from the Gospel of John. That that he is he is sort of a, both a, a high priest who offers this sacrifice, and he is the very sacrifice himself. So the notion that he was sinless, uh, that he uh, he was nailed to that cross and essentially paid the uh, ransom price. Uh, for you and I, uh, for the sins that we were that we had committed, so there ha it had to be a pure sacrifice uh, 
and 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 so but, but you and I weren't around, so none of our sins, so to speak. So Christ, if he sacrificed himself, he, he did this once, and that's the, I finally understand that with the, with the, with the comparison to, to the lamb, right? But in, in Jewish belief, it, you know, the atonement needs to come after the sin, right? That there seems to be you know you can't you can't break out of the cycle. It, it, it cannot, you cannot atone now for the next 30 years or for the next 200 years for all your children, right? It, it, it is down to the individual and there is the specific sequence of you, you, you sin, you atone, you improve your, your life until you become the best possible version of yourself. That's how I understood the Old Testament. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, and again, I, I recognize that uh, <clears throat> Jews would not accept it probably accept what I'm saying about Jesus. <clears throat> but, um, yeah. you know, I think, again, the best place to, you know, focus the discussion might be the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament. It's an, it's an anonymous document thought to be a, a written sermon uh, written to a congregation, perhaps in Rome, uh, many of whom uh, were now Jewish Christians who were uh, sort of in danger of drifting back towards uh, uh, re sort of reviving the rights of Judaism instead of putting their, their trust in Jesus. And so uh, the writer, who's arguably the most sophisticated, uh, highly educated, rhetorically trained writer of all the uh, New Testament writers, provides what's known in, it's, it's known as syncresis. It's a compare, it's in the ancient uh, world, uh, it was a technique of rhetoric by, by which one would compare two entities by showing how one was very good, but the other was superior, uh, often mm -hmm. way superior, had greater honor and so forth. So what the writer does is to demonstrate uh, in, in fact, the epistle starts uh, by using a, a word. He, he, he begins by saying, polymeros kapalitropos, uh, which is actually, I did a, a presentation at the Society of Biblical Literature on this very topic. It's essentially the adverbial form of that, that second term, polytropos, uh, adverbial form of the same adjective used to describe Odysseus in the opening of the Odyssey, uh, of, of many tropes, of many uh, ways. Um, so according to this writer, uh, God spoke to the, to the Jewish fathers in many ways, uh, in many times and in many ways. Uh, but now he has spoken, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's spoken definitively in, and there's no definite article, it's simply the, the Greek word, Eos in modern Greek or huios, uh, he has spoken in son. And so this entire epistle or sermon uh, is a exposition of how um, the old, the, what, what Christians would call the Old Testament sacrificial system, which involved many, many priests who would die and would have to be replaced uh, who would offer uh, continual sacrifices on this altar. But it, this was ultimately, um, 
you want to say superseded, uh, that's a questionable theological term to use here, but that, that Jesus came and only needed as high priest to once for all to give one sacrifice of himself, the perfect sacrifice, which, which basically made all those previous sacrifices obsolete. They were but a, a type pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Uh, that uh, the, the fancy theological term is substitutionary atonement. Yep. Uh, so I don't know if that helps or... That helps a lot. I think this is this is a wonderful way to to to, to get some structure um, about these things that I, I thought about when when I read through the documents. But that 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 additional sermon is not part of the the New Testament typically, right? You have to look it up separately. Uh, you will need. You, well, you, actually, you, it, is, it is part of the New Testament. It it's is, always okay. uh, Paul's letters. Okay. Yeah, it's between and uh, it's after Paul's letters, and uh, it's sort of the head document at the beginning of what are sometimes called the general epistles. Yeah, I'm fascinated by what made it into this canon, right? And I'm fascinated because for 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 the Pentecostals, as it is for the Jews, the, it is it is a complete document, and it became frozen in place, right? It developed over a long time frame, and it was written at some point, and it was edited. We see this with Deuteronomy a lot, all these edits that have been made. But then there, there came this day, and it seems like this is something that happened way before it was completely written down. It seems to be partially still in oral traditions. And it was frozen in place, and it, 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 it became to be believed as this complete, complete divine um, commission by God. And it's not something that can ever change again. And I think for Judaism, they, they, they started, a lot of the old traditions that, that were not part of the canon, they became the Talmud later on, right? And the, the New Testament, I don't, I'm not so sure how it dealt with this, but I've always felt this is tough, a tough logical step, right? To, to, to say, well, we have this, this codified set of rules, this codified set of stories that are really the mainstay of our belief. And it's kind of, we make a law, but we always know that we can change the law. We can change the constitution. If enough people vote for it, we can change anything, right? But with these documents, and I think this was a big debate in, in early Christianity and also between the Greeks and the Jews, how much can something that's that old be divine? And, and what happens if it never changes again? How does it adapt to whatever comes later, right? So we, we, we have changes in our society. We have changes in in our real life. How can such an old document still be relevant? I think that's a lot, what a lot of people are asking these days. Yeah, well, the notion of inspiration, uh, which comes from a Greek word, is to, to uh, it means God breathed. And so the early Christians recognized in what we now call the New Testament, that these documents had a special uh, quality and inspiration with, with, you might say, with a capital I. Uh, they were uh, vetted, tested. Um, I mean, we know of a number of documents that didn't survive. Uh, for example, we know that Paul had in, wrote a number of letters. There was, a, there was an exchange between uh, himself and the church in Corinth. Some of those letters are gone. They never, for whatever reason, weren't deemed worthy 
uh, uh, or important enough to be included in the canon. Uh, the canon, the, the, the formation of the New Testament canon is sort of a long and uh, convoluted discussion, but basically uh, these, the documents that were later recognized or sort of officially recognized as the New Testament were primarily were those that were uh, used, uh, recognized. Uh, they were in circulation. Yeah, there were some documents that were on the fringe, where some Christians thought they should be included in the canon. The the word the, the Greek word canon basically uh, means a rule or a ruler, uh, a measure. And some didn't make it. Some did. Uh, some took longer to receive sort of full authorization, so to speak. Um, but of course the New Testament, for Christians, the New Testament canon also includes what we would call the old or uh, the Jewish scriptures. And most of the early Christians were Jewish. Uh, it, it seems there may have been only one exception among the New Testament writers and that was Luke. Uh, who seems to have been a Gentile, uh, though perhaps uh, what's called a God-fearer. He, he has, a, he, uh, has a, had a vast, uh, extensive knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, probably in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint or LXX. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, I focus on the Johannine literature, or sometimes called Johannine literature, and Sometimes it's overlooked that the end of the of the book of Revelation, known as the Apocalypse, towards the very end of it, um, the, the, there's a, a warning, a dire warning to anyone who would tamper with the contents of the book. Don't add to these words and don't take away from these words. Well, well that actual statement, it, it's like deja vu. It's, it's, a, uh, it's an echo of the book of Deuteronomy, which has a very similar statement to not add or subtract from the words. And of course, within the Jewish canon, uh, Deuteronomy sealed, it was the final installment of the first five books uh, known in Greek as the Pentateuch. So, uh, and I could say more, but I think, I think we are given some signs that the New Testament canon is intact. Um, it's complete. Um, uh, an another interesting uh, observation I'd make on the end of the at the end of the Gospel of John, what's called the epilogue, the very last verse. The author, the beloved disciple, says, uh, "You know, there's many other uh, things that Jesus did. Uh, that if we, if I, you know, tried to capture all of them, I'm paraphrasing, but you couldn't build a library." a cosmic-sized library big enough to fit them all. Uh, well, he ends on the word, uh, on the Greek word for books. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the word book. So I think it's almost like bookends, that, that the author John, uh, writing near the end of the first century, is implying that the four-gospel canon is complete, which is an argument uh, made strongly in the second century by uh, Irenaeus, uh, in the face of a lot of Gospels being written, particularly by Gnostics. There's a lot of competition, and they were claiming their versions of, of the Jesus narrative 
were superior to the 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 you know the classic authorized Christian versions. So yeah, it can canonicity. Uh, the whole canon debate was a big topic, especially in the second century. You know, how do we determine which books are authoritative and which are not? You know, you know which have the authentic voice uh, and, and which are inferior in some way. Yeah, and I, I know you, you've been looking very particularly on John's writings, and I thought they are... When I read the New Testament the first time, I felt like he's that he's that cult leader. He's the guy who actually started it all. Uh, he 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 kind of, you know, Jesus was this hippie. Um, he 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 goes around Jerusalem. He 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 is this. We he's in love with everyone, as, and he, he brings everyone into his tribe. Um, he 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 make, tries to make everyone happy, but John is the guy who who actually wants to make this. I don't know, an, an entrepreneurial journey. And that's how it seemed to me reading it. That's how, how I saw the story out. You know, obviously I put my own glasses on and he seemed much more important than people would give him credit if, if, you, if you have a more neutral um, interpretation of the New Testament. That's just my, my um, impression. And what I also, what I think what you really focus on, I think this is really fascinating, is how it must have felt to hear those stories back in the day, 2000 years ago, um, how people were fascinated by those, and how, how much of a, it was like the social media of, um, you know, 2000 years ago. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Wow, you, you just said a, a, lot, of, a lot of things. Um, yeah, I do focus in the, in the Johannine literature and uh, it does that gospel the gospel, according to John, also known as the fourth gospel, makes some very uh, astounding claims about Jesus. Uh, his wasn't the first gospel to make claims of deity, that Jesus was divine. Uh, but John uh, presents what sometimes theologians call high Christology, um, an emphasis on Jesus's divine uh Source, if you want to call it that, um, yeah, and, and you, and yeah, you hit it very well. One of the primary ways that John communicates this truth is uh, through this notion of a divine, a divine journey, uh, the sending. One who comes down is is a divine figure, and then returns and goes goes back up. Um, so. And, and John is, uh, he begins uh, with the Greek word, a uh, Greek phrase, anarche, uh, in the beginning, which is the identical phrase that begins the book of Genesis in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. So uh, what I think he's doing is he is, uh, he's evoking the, the entire story of the Jewish scriptures. And particularly, he's doing a, a sort of a, a commentary. Uh, you know, he talks about, he uses, he talks about these motifs or themes of light, darkness, life, and so forth. Well, it's, it's sort of a, a replaying. I like to call it a rebooting of the creation story, where now Jesus, uh, in his incarnation, it, it's as though uh, 
it's as though the entire story of creation has started again. It's a new creation. And you see this kind of phenomenon uh, in various places in the Old Testament, like, uh, for example, Noah. You know, after Noah and his family gets off the ark, it's like a reboot. Uh, repop, you know, the Lord tells them to repopulate the earth again. And it's like, let's start over. Uh, so, yeah, John certainly presents a, a bit of a unique uh, perspective on Jesus's identity. We have the I am sayings. So this harkens back to the uh, epiphany there on Mount Sinai when, when Moses is, is, uh, encounters, you know, a burning bush and, uh, the Lord speaks to him, says, I am, you know, who's going to, Moses asks, who should I tell the Israelites sent me? He says, I am that I am. Uh, so in essence, John, uh, and I, w I wouldn't say the other gospels don't do this. They do this in a very different way and not maybe quite as explicitly as John does, but they present Jesus as the embodiment of the God of the Old Testament, uh, uh, come, in, come in person. Yeah, I feel John's gospel is just so much more sophisticated. I think it also comes last, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's correct. So it's it, you read it and you're like, man, I've already read this. So what what's new? And then John hits you and you're like, whoa, what he sees is very different. Right? It's like like it's it's the same story, but like you have a director's cut and you have the regular release. That's how it felt yeah. to me. And uh, when you when we we just briefly touched upon this. I know you do a lot of research in this. Um, when we see that impact that religion had um, all over the centuries, and it is generally was something that was already transmitted. So it wasn't something they could write down simply because you didn't have a lot of writing material. Only very few people had the skills and then a few more people had it. And then there was papyrus and then, but it was still like a lot of, a lot of effort to even go to a library and read something. And then much later we had paper and now we are drowning in all kinds of stuff that, that kind of talks to us and gives us narratives. And it's, it's, we, we, we fall for storytelling, um, for better or worse, right? So it helps us to understand things, but it's also easy to put thoughts in our mind that shouldn't be there maybe. When, when we look back at, at these old documents, how much of a cloud storage of actual culture and actual knowledge do you think they were? Because from now we, we look at these stories and say, oh, that's silly, that's a silly story. Even if it happened, what, why are they telling it in such a silly way where everyone, was everyone such an idiot? We, we are on a high, high altar, right? We, we are, we are looking down on the, our ancestors, obviously. But how did it feel in real life, maybe 2,000 years ago, if we can, can, could transport ourselves back? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. It's a, it's a big question. Are, are you asking that what would it have been like to live back then and experience that kind of culture? And Yeah, how much were people drawn to it and how much of it expressed like a compressed version, like a zip file of, of whatever they knew about that was zipped into these updates or the final version of each, you know, they did the subsequent religions every 500 years, it seems to be a new update. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're uh, getting at. So as we, you and I have talked about, one of my areas of study is known as ancient media culture. 
And so ancient media culture has to do with the ways that people communicated and uh, stored and uh, these sacred traditions or any, any traditions really, um, how they inscribed them into their memories, uh, how these documents were uh, uh, trans uh, transmitted, but, but read aloud. So you think of the role of the lector. Uh, generally, scholars believe about maybe 10% of the Greco-Roman population was functionally literate. And so with most people unable to read, they would have relied upon the role of a lector to read out loud to them. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in ancient literature and how it functioned, how it worked, how it, how it uh, serves as, uh, to capture um, the realities, of course, in Jesus. So, you know, here's, here's uh, the beloved, the writer of the fourth gospel, probably writing several decades, many decades later, after the, the Jesus event, and he's recalling, he's, of course, he's been teaching orally for, for long, but now for a long time, but now he's committing this to the written medium. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how does that reconstruct or how does that usher people into who weren't there, who weren't eyewitnesses like the fourth gospel writer claims to be, how does he bring them back uh, decades before to, to Jesus, to, to help them, what he, what he actually says is to see, right? To see, he becomes uh, almost a bad analogy, but almost like a seeing eye dog for a person who's blind. How can he lead these people who weren't, uh, weren't there at these events and seeing Jesus in person, how can they be sort of transported, uh, almost like a virtual re reality into those events? Um, you know, and so my interest, my my sort of passionate interest is in how can we read these documents so that we are we enter into the world of the text, so we are transported back into the ancient world to be um, recipients, as though we're the original audience, and we're immersed in that culture, and we we understand the symbolism, we understand the Roman imperial ideology, which is. Uh, you know, uh, confronting you wherever you went and inscriptions and statues and temples and so forth. What was it like, for example, to live in the ancient city of Ephesus, uh, where likely the gospel of John was written sometime in the mid AD 90, you know, AD 95 around there, uh, to feel the taste, the, the sensations of go of going back. Um, and so a lot of my, actually a lot of my research has dealt with both the, the oral slash aural. So O with an O, the, the speaking of these documents and oral with an A, A-U, the, the listening, the processing of, of these texts, these Greek texts as they were written aloud. In fact, I did my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on the prologue of the first epistle of John. And I studied the sound patterns of that text. And I read a lot of scholars were saying, you know, this is bad Greek. It's convoluted. It has two digressions in it. The, the main verbs don't occur until verse three. Uh, this is really bad. And, 
And I, so I took a different approach by saying, well, what if this text was read aloud in the first century and um, in an oral climate? And I, I did, you know, I can go into detail if you want, but basically I determined that this was actually uh, fit very well uh, in its ancient context as an introduction to a document that would have been read aloud and would have been persuasive, rhetorically persuasive, would have drawn the audience in, would have established the ethos of the author and so forth. So I'm not sure if I've really answered your question or not. Yeah, you did, you did. And I think it, it, it is one of those big troubles that I, I went to um, the pyramids in Giza and to Luxor and to the tombs and I tried to transport myself back into what was going on in the ancient times, in Egypt at that time. And that was at least my goal. But it's so hard because, A, we, we have, I have no understanding of hieroglyphs, um, but obviously there's translations, you can read them. But it takes 10, 15, 20 years to, I feel, and, and not just a lifetime experience, but also knowledge what actually happened at the time. But there's still so many detractions. There's other people, there's other rules, there's photos. So it takes, well, we see these, 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 these symbols from the old days in a very different perspective. And when you today buy a book that is the Bible, you're like, okay, it's the Bible, it's a cheap book. It's the library of the world at the time, right? But, but, but we have now hundreds of thousands of books and I probably have a few thousand at home. It, it's, it's taken this, this specialness, this, 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 you know, it's this ancient culture that was transported to you and that, that influenced all our ancestors. It doesn't seem to have that specialness anymore because there's so many other books and maybe they're hundred years old and there's con marks. And, you know, whatever you can think of, there is thousands of documents. So it, it takes away the transportation layer and the uniqueness that it probably had 2000 years ago. It, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that we have to engage in, in sort of an imaginative time travel. Uh, I yeah. think the temptation and that, I mean, this is natural, but the temptation is we read from our perspective. So, you know, uh, here in the United States, we, we tend to read the Bible uh, from our North American culture and, and, and also through the lens of hundreds and hundreds of years of theological debates, you know, uh, creeds, all kinds of uh, uh, church history, and so forth. Uh, through our, we we have our own modern technology, and we I tend I think we tend to impose on the scriptures our own modern agenda. And so I think the more we can uh, understand about the ancient world, uh, sort of reconstruct it. Uh, try to understand the, the the Bible on its own terms in its own day. The you know the the, the sharper relief, the the more we'll actually understand uh, what it's saying. Yeah, I, I I I tried to do this, but it's 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 there's a lot of effort involved. I think you you really have to have this presence. You have to have the calmness of your mind to be able to do this. And one thing that I did, I went to Ethiopia, and I'm not just to artists but to, to places um, outside the cities. And I tried to, you know, understand a little more how their 
slightly, it's called orthodox, but it's quite a different form of Christianity. They're, 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 the interpretations of a lot of um, what's in the Bible and how they, they live through Christianity seems very different to me. And I spent a couple of months in total, but I felt like I wasn't any closer. I mean, it's, I don't understand the language, so that's the first problem. Do a lot of people speak English? And I, I tried to, to kind of read between the lines and it wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. And I know you've been to others for quite some time. What was your impression of, of how much you can time travel in, in, in travel not just to Ethiopia, but also in a, in a time that was a couple hundred years ago, a couple thousand years ago? Yeah, so I was in Ethiopia with a colleague back in, I think it was 2003. Uh, we taught there in Addis Ababa. Um, it was a very different world than, you know, I've, I'd been accustomed to living in and growing up in the United States. And so we lived in uh, for several days. Uh, we, I think we were there for a couple of weeks total. We stayed in a compound for most of the time. We were in a hotel at the very beginning for like three days. But we spent time, tra you know, traveling around the city, uh, we took a journey out into the country um, and I was very moved by the commitment of these individuals, uh, many of whom had been persecuted under, under communism. But my, my colleague made a statement about how much closer their culture is to the Bible and referring largely to ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, the way they think, the way they do things, which really gives, I think in many ways, gives them an advantage. Uh, you know, much of, much of theology has been under, undertaken by, you know, Western, you know, professors, uh, white pro uh, professors in Western universities in Europe and the United States. And, you know, I, I certainly think that uh, the rest of the world uh, has, has a voice uh, an important voice in uh, studying scripture and helping us to better understand it in part because their culture uh, much in many ways much more closely resembles that of of ancient times and uh, I, I was also going to mention we talked about this uh, earlier but you know I traveled to Europe and uh, the former Soviet Union back in high school with a with a, a group across Northern Europe, we stayed with families in Germany, Denmark, and England. And for this, you know, someone who grew up on, in, on a farm in a small town, it was an, it, it opened up a whole new world for me. And uh, I think, you know, travel helps us to realize, you know, we're not where I live and where, you know, I work and all that. We're not the center of the the navel of the universe, you know, people do things different, differently in different places. They have different uh, attitudes and, and cultural values and so forth. And I think, so I think the analogy of traveling to another country, especially if you can not just be a tourist, but to stay there as a resident for a while and get to experience the culture, that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of understanding the Bible better by um, as much as virtually possible to time travel to that land, the land of, of the Bible. And of course, the Bible itself uh, occurred in a lot of different places, uh, both in 
the, the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean world. But um, so I, I think context, original context, ancient context is very, very important. Yeah, I went to Istanbul uh, many times, but one of the first times I was there, I was really curious to see the city walls. So I trekked out to the city walls. It's very popular. A lot of people do that. And uh, I, I didn't think anything about it because I grew up in Europe and basically every city has city walls. They're fortified, there's castles. So I didn't think any of it. And then I, um, there were also little churches, little Coptic churches, and there were mosaics. So I, I checked them out and I thought, this, this is awesome. Um, I, so I went all around the city walls and enjoyed the views. And it never clicked for me that you know what we i always assumed istanbul is a muslim city because it is right but it for the longest time it was kind of the the, the headquarter of christianity at least one of the headquarters as the remaining part of the roman empire which was ultimately that that main spreading engine for christianity even if it fought it in the beginning and why would you have city walls why would you have churches it didn't really click for me so i i I feel Istanbul is one of those wonderful places where you see things change over time so drastically, but they, they, they're being repurposed. And a lot of people were not so happy about Hagia Sophia, probably. Um, but I think Istanbul is a, is a wonderful city and a wonderful Islamic city. But it could also be a Christian city, I feel, in a couple of hundred years again. It's, it works irrespective of their religion, but the religion still is a pivotal part of of daily life, but it it has a certain utility. And I've been asking a lot of people why they're so, they're so determined to be atheists these days. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you use something that has proven track record in making your survive better? Because our ancestors believed in religion and otherwise it would, would not be around. What do you think is, from your point of view, when you would have to defend religion against atheists, and I, I'm, I'm sure you have to do this quite a bit, what do you think is the utility, if we, if we just focus on that, I know there's way more about it, but if you just focus on the utility of religion, what would you say? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I would, I would start by pointing out that, especially in Western countries, religion is, is viewed as personal, private, uh, you know, this notion of separation of church and state. Uh, but when we begin to look at the, the role of religion in the ancient world, whether it's in the ancient Middle East or uh, in the Mediterranean, you know, Greco-Roman world, uh, there wasn't that sort of separation. Uh, it was part of, the, of public life. Um, and there wasn't a sharp dichotomy between one's religion, uh, politics, uh, civic life, it was all intertwined. And so uh, I think there's a notion that, okay, so you believe Christianity, and so thus you believe this, this list of, uh, you know, propositional statements. Um, but I think if we go back into the ancient world, Religion was, was viewed largely as a philosophy, uh, uh, in other words, a way of life. And, 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 and many, many people back then would have viewed Jesus and his, teach, and his teachings as a form of philosophy. 
So, it, I mean, if you go back to, I mean, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and a whole host of uh, well-known and not so well-known philosophers, they basically, all of them in one way or another taught about the good life. You know, our, our, our time on earth is short. Uh, what are the options? Uh, what out of all, all the choices we have, what, which life is the best will give you the richest, uh, most uh, joyful uh, way to live, right? And so I think, I think that's helpful. So even, for example, when you think about uh, the Sermon on the, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is kind of a, a I don't know, it, it's, it's programmatic. It's, it's almost a manifesto of, of uh, his teachings. Uh, it's, it's large. One can, can actually view that. I think a lot of people would have is this is a, this is a great philosopher slash religious figure who is laying out the principles of how best to live one's life. Uh, and so, so I think it, it's helpful. Again, we, you know, we think of religion as private, well, you're Catholic, you know, I'm Presbyterian, you know, we better not talk about that too much. It's a forbidden topic. Well, again, in the ancient world, there wasn't that this uh, iron curtain between religion and philosophy and, and politics and everything. It was all integrated into life. I mean, even many of the many artisans and various kinds of uh, uh, associations that were involved in making products and so forth, they were all connected to uh, some form of religion. Uh, and so long story short, I, I would answer it in terms of what is the, be what is the best life? Uh, what is a virtuous life? What is a life that's impacting? What is a life that's, that's rich? Um, and, and for me, that, that way is Christianity. Uh, following the teachings of Jesus. I think what a lot of people feel today is, and obviously that's open to debate, but they feel organized religion, the way we experience religion, right? It's not that we have people um, in, in a public debate in a theater that would literally introduce us to these wonderful texts. No, 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 this doesn't work that way, right? This has gone deep into the rules of our legal system. And there is this organized religion with very fortified rules. Now you can skirt the rules a little bit, but that kind of defeats the purpose, right? So you don't, if you want to be religious, why skirt the, the rules so much? So I think what happened is that these organized religion that we've experienced all in our lifetime, right? So it's extremely organized. It's, it's broken down into, everything is broken down into what you should do at what day. And yes, there is, a, there is a connection to the religion, to the philosophy, but I think a lot of people forgot about this, maybe because they didn't put, don't put any effort in, right? That might be it. But they have that view that it is, you get a ton of roles, but there isn't a lot of upside. So the upside used to be, you know, it's, it makes you a better person. And the upside is, it's an interesting story. Like for, for a lot of people, that's it, right? It's, it's really an interesting narrative and you want to involve yourself with it. But now there is so many, there's so much competition, there's so many, so much distraction. There are other 
options, self-help books, there is yoga. Um, there's so much more competition. So the, the, the utility of, of following this philosophy to a T has reduced itself, it seems. Mm -hmm. And from the other hand, I, I don't think that's true, but I think a lot of people perceive it that way. The amount of rules is staggeringly high. It's kind of like when we, when it's kind of what people say about the U.S., right? So we, we, we only added new laws. We haven't gotten rid of all the laws from 200 years ago. They still exist. We have added, 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 and now we have so many rules. It's kind of most industries and most places you, you want to be creative, they you can't because there's so many rules. So you have to find new areas like the cloud, for instance, now computer technology, where there are no rules and you can play Wild West again and then eventually you will have the same fate. And I feel a lot of people have the exact bad impression with religion. It's, it's over-regulated, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think there is a common view that Christianity is a set of rules, a set of negative rules. You can't do this, you can't do that. Uh, as someone who, you know, in my late teens, uh, I went through a, a lifestyle that uh, ended up being a train wreck. Uh, I found Christianity to be to be liberating, uh, to be joyful. Uh, and I mean, yes, cert certainly there's principles, uh, Christian principles that are taught in scripture. But I think I think the bottom line is this the same thing that Jesus told uh, the Apostle Peter in the end of the Gospel of John, follow me. So uh, we don't, it's not necessarily following a, a you know, a, 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 a codification, you know, a, a series of rules, do this, don't, don't do that. But it's, it's following a, a figure, following a, a, a person, so to speak, a leader, um, and embracing his teachings, embracing his, his person. And I, I find it enriching, you know, personally. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely with you, but I'm, I'm trying to find out why social media is not full of professors, evangelizers, pastors, uh, religious figures. They are there, right? But they are not, and we can maybe blame it on Twitter and Facebook that they suppress it. I'm not sure that's true, though. They seem to be, and even, even this show, um, I feel it's, there is an antipathy between this new technology and belief. Maybe it's different in Brazil. Which, Everything's different in Brazil, but I think in a lot of the West, this is a real problem. There seems to be a misconnect between the belief and the, the beauty of the belief, minus all the downside, all the rules, right? So let's forget about them, but the survival handbook and this, 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 you're not alone in the universe, it takes care of your anxiety. This message, I don't see it every day in my Twitter feed, and I would expect it, right? Because Christianity is very evangelizing. Yeah, so you're talking. So you're talking about the reluctance of many Christians to use social media platforms to share technology. Or, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. I'm not sure what to what to say. I mean, I'm not a big social media person. Uh, I don't. I don't do Facebook uh, and so forth. But I have, and I think this pandemic has. Uh, uh, reinforced this for me, but I, I plan to actually uh, start my own blog because I'm recognizing that, you know, we're so much of a, an of a internet culture 
that uh, it, it's a venue. You know, it's often been said that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would be taking advantage of these uh, various kinds of uh, social media platforms and technology to to he reach. Would be a YouTuber. He wouldn't travel through Aegean anymore. He would just do <laughs> Zoom calls. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and, and even the seminary where I teach, Urshan Graduate School of Theology, um, we, it's very, the, the majority of our students are distance learning students. And a lot of our, we use multiple modes with which to convey our, our classes, uh, both in person, we use Zoom. Uh, we have live classes. For example, I teach Greek live. Uh, on 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 a on a, a web conference, um, so yeah, we're rec we we've utilized technology and, and recognize its its value, but I'm, I'm I think that could be done more for sure. Yeah, I I'm curious on your view and it kind of plays into this. We see these three major themed religions, and obviously there's there's tons of little splits later on in Christianity, especially. We, we, I'm curious, when you look at history, and we, 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 it starts with the Old Testament, it starts with the Israelites, and then we, we, Jesus enters the field, and you know, it, it, he converts a lot of Jews into the new belief, and then we later on have the revolution in, in Saudi Arabia, so to speak, where, where Islam spreads within 20 or 30 years, basically takes over the Middle East and good parts of Europe, and out of nowhere. And why do you think these, it seems to be there was, it was an innovation, right? You, you created something that was better than what was there before because there were Jews for a long time in Saudi Arabia, they were also in Ethiopia, but still Christianity seemed to be the dominant religion. There seems to be a, a constant drive for the hearts and minds of people. There is, it is a strong innovation in religion, especially in the US, um, because it was very competitive here. We never had a straight religion, which was our savior. So we still have a good amount of religion. I think only the Jews can pull it off. They somehow modernize it without anyone noticing. I don't know how they do it. But what do you think and what is your outlook also, how this progress and this, this innovation will continue? And are we like at the footsteps right now of a new super religion? Yeah. So let me let me start by going back once again. I mean, when Christianity was founded, so I mentioned Pentecost. Uh, it Christianity spread like like wildfire in in many ways uh, around the the empire. And what's interesting is Acts, the book of Acts, uh, Luke's second volume, ends with Paul. Uh, uh, preaching and teaching out in, in a situation of house arrest there in the city of Rome. And so uh, in a matter of relatively short amount of time, some 30 years after Jesus's resurrection, you have uh, Christianity reaching the imperial capital. And what's very interesting is to read that against the backdrop of um, other ancient epics uh, for example, uh, uh, the, uh, Vir Virgil's Aeneid, which talks about a figure who eventually goes and establishes, uh, uh, well, in a, in a nutshell, a, he's, he's a survivor of the city of Troy, travels through all kinds of uh, hardships, and eventually uh, 
essentially lays down the foundation of, of, of Rome. So there's a sense in which Luke's uh, story of Christianity is a count, it's subversive. It's a counter story to the prevailing uh, claims of, of Rome. And now Christianity has made its way to, uh, you know, the, the capital of the pagan world. And so I, I think, and, and let me also mention the last word in, in the Greek text in, in Acts is unhindered, uh, implying that Christianity was unstoppable. Nothing could stop it. Persecution, uh, all kinds of problems, both internal and external to the church. Ship, Paul enduring shipwreck and all kinds of stuff. So I, I mean, I, I feel that Christianity is ultimately unstoppable. Um, there's been attempts for thousands of years to destroy it. And, and so I think in our day and age, uh, I, I hope that there will be a great revival breakout. Uh, I think people are hungry. I think people are sort of tired of the status quo. People are fearful. Uh, there's a longing in people's souls. And uh, I, I feel that Christianity has the answer. And again, not, sim not simply as a set of propositional statements, but a real uh, dynamic experience. And, you know, I've I've been fortunate to witness so many people and and uh, prayed with people who have received the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues. I've seen people whose lives were a disaster, um, and you know, ha have a brand new life in Jesus. And so for me. Uh, there's a there's a huge need in our world. Our world is hurting, and I and I think the pandemic has really brought that into sharp relief. That people are hurting, and uh, you know I think I believe that Jesus ha, ha, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that He can uh, bring people hope and uh, fulfillment. I think the need for religion and for for the way to explain the world that hasn't changed. I think it's 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 as, as relevant as it's ever been. And I think the religions have this as a, as a form of philosophy that explains the world, but also tells us what we should do, what we ought to do, not just what we are doing. I think this is as relevant as ever. I feel like many of the older religions, they need to become a little more sexy again. I, I think that's maybe what's missing. And, you know, I, I remember reading Paul's letters and he literally just went to Asia Minor once. He had a couple of days there. And then two years later, there's like hundreds and thousands of followers. He's like, whoops, um, I don't think he expected that, right? So it, it, it got viral, kind of like Facebook, right? Facebook went viral. They obviously, they wanted to be big, but they never expected that success. And so did Google. So we, we, we have something that is on people's minds, um, is something that they recommend to each other. And we see this in the technology space a lot. That's the best marketing you want, the viral marketing. And maybe, maybe Christianity needs to learn from these internet giants. Or I don't know what it is, right? Or it, it, it doesn't have to be Christianity. I'm, I'm as 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 um, happy with any other religion that's not taken literal. And I think that's always a problem if you take it too literal and apply something that's thousands of years old to today, hundred percent. If you do it ninety nine percent, you'd be good to go, I think. And obviously, that's that's almost always open to debate, but. 
I feel I don't I don't really see a religion gone viral yet. It probably goes viral in China because it's a very different um, scenario there. But I'm I'm not seeing people in San Francisco secretly whispering about a new belief. It's not QAnon or maybe it's wokeism, but you know it's not the same thing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, and I think my own life attests to the notion that um, people are sort of tired with, if I can put it this way, formal uh, religion that doesn't deliver, uh, that involves rituals and so forth, but doesn't really, if I can put it this way, satisfy the soul. And, you know, when I, when I was... Uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit back in 1982, I knew I had found what I had been longing for all that time. It was, it was the most satisfying experience I'd ever, you know, experienced. And, and I was one who left uh, the tradition I was raised in. Uh, I kind of rebelled from it. I went in, in, in the drug culture and so forth. And uh, I think that the people are looking for something real, something uh, experiential, uh, something that actually delivers the goods, that, satis that satisfies uh, uh, in a profound way. Uh, and, yeah. and I think, you know, if you look at uh, the history of Pentecostalism in the, in the 20th century, and I won't go through the, uh, you know, how it all got started, but uh, which I could, but um, at a time when a uh, a lot of other mainstream denominations were starting to be to go into decline. You found Pentecostalism spreading like wildfire, as well yeah. as uh, uh, what's sometimes referred to as the charismatic movement, which were was made up largely of people who still loosely identified with their mainstream religions, but they embraced the experience of speaking in tongues and sort of the miraculous. Um, and, you know, uh, we need the miraculous. You know, if, Christi if, if the claims that Jesus rose from the dead and these claims about the supernatural, and that's a modern, I, I admit that's a modern uh, term, but uh, if these claims about them occurring in the Bible are, are true, I think we're going to continue to see more and more of these uh, miracles take place. Uh, I remember one time asking an elder in our church who has done a lot of uh, uh, missionary work uh, over uh, down in South America and Central America. And I was telling him about an account I had read of, a, of another famous missionary who had experienced all kinds of miracles in his life and he himself was raised from the dead. And I said to this elder, you knew this man. Uh, I, I'm amazed by the miracles. Well, this elder said to me, I don't, I don't want to pop your bubble, Jeff, but on the foreign mission fields, those kind of miracles take place every day. And, you know, I think for me, uh, well, I think in America, we are so skeptical. Uh, we, uh, we are so, uh, how would I say this? Uh, without sounding negative, we're, we're scientific. And I don't mean, so, I, I think science is a good thing, but we, we're so sort of analytical that we don't have any, we don't allow room in our worldview for God to do amazing things, to, to 
do miracles, uh, to do the perform supernatural things. And, and, uh, I, I don't know, maybe the pandemic will help, will bring some people to such a state of desperation that they start to seek God again. I mean, we, you can look at the histories of great revivals that are broken out and often they, they follow, uh, times of great trauma and, uh, disasters. And, and, you know, look what happened in our country and, uh, in 9-11, everyone was talking religion. Everyone was starting to pray and so forth. So as bad as these things, these catastrophes sometimes are, I think they they have a tendency to bring us to our knees and to start to seek God. And he starts to uh, demonstrate his his presence and his power. When well, people are for him. Yes, yes, you absolutely you're absolutely right. Do I hope we don't have to go through disasters to, to find that belief again? And I, 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 it's a bit like, you know, I grew up in the Eastern Germany and we were all kind of praying, so to speak. There was no religion allowed, but we were praying that the United States and Western Germany would fall apart um, and we would be the lucky winners, right? But that's, that's a very dangerous precipice to be on, I feel. And what, what I really feel is, is something, and maybe it's being replaced, um, this part of religion, I'm not sure about it, but one of the big utilities for me is that we, we believe in something positive, and this is what some people call it faith, but I call it a bit a reality distortion, and I'm familiar with it as an entrepreneur, you need to distort reality, right? You need to convince people that a piece of paper is worth $10 million, $100 million, and that's an idea can actually be put into place. Yes, there is a certain likeliness and you can play around probabilities, but in the end, it's a story. You, you, you present the story and the story needs to grasp your audience or you go home and no money, right? When you go to a VC in Central Road, you, you apply the same thing, I feel, that religion does. And in, in, in a sense, we all do this, right? We want to persuade people and we want to, we want to draw up a story that's not just believable, but we also want to deliver on it. We don't just want to get the money and flee to Russia and sit on the beach somewhere. No, we want to deliver on it, right? So there is, there is this evangelizing spirit in it, not just to convince people, but also deliver the goods. And what, what I always felt is what every religion brings with it is not just self-improvement, looking up to a higher ideals of God is like the best possible person or divine being in the world, but it's an ideal for us we can look up to. And we, we also look at the future unrealistically positive. And it's been, been this comparison between the zero-sum game that you have in, in what, what communism is. It's basically a zero-sum game. It says, well, there's some people who are better off, some people worse off, so let's make them all poor. Everyone is poor. Everyone has the same thing. We basically, we have nothing. And that's a, that's a communist idea. And I know it is intrinsically in us to be to have things equally divided. But I think what's much more important, I think this is what Christianity completely underestimates its influence. It's how it makes people rationally positive, positive. They would never be as positive. But in the end, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we all go out and share the love with someone else and evangelize and go out and say, well, you know, I, I, I want to share the love of God with you. Mm -hmm. This is maybe something strange, right? To non-believer, this sounds a little weird, right? But if we do this, we create this, this trust first, even if it's not, uh, not something that um, depends on in each individual instance, but for society, it error corrects and gives us this incentive to look at our future more positive, to think and assume we have free will. I think free will is one of, it's the same thing. We, we think that the slightly 
more positive view on the world. I think then we become bigger and we grow the whole society. So it's like kind of the, the, the GDP, right? If you're not positive about the future, GDP cannot rise. Well, there's a couple of exceptions, but I feel this forward-looking positivity is required. And if we lose this, which is a big problem right now, people get really depressed, even do they live on really high living standards, right? So the, the, the more, more rich countries are often the mentally poor ones, they're mentally depressed. This is a role, this, this, and you can call it mental health, but it's way more than this, it's more society health. And I think this is where religion, especially Christianity, has delivered the goods over so many centuries. And now it's falling out, and I can't really put my finger to it what actually changed, because it seems like all the institutions are still around, the churches are the same, if not better, and, and than before. And we have the, a lot of this knowledge is, is baked into the state and our institutions. You know, we're a very Christian country, so to speak, even if people don't want to admit it, but the, 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 our founding fathers and the, the, the Constitution has a lot of Christian ideals baked into it. Yes. And I feel like there must be an answer out there what's missing, but I haven't found it yet. I have no idea. Yeah, well, you said, you said a lot of good things. The gospel, the word itself is from, a, from the Greek word evangelion in modern Greek pronunciation. And it means good news. So it was uh, when, a, when a herald went to some uh, province in the Roman Empire to announce the birth of a, of a successor to the emperor or some military victory. That's what it was called, good news. Um, so, so yes, indeed, Christianity is good news. Uh, I, I personally feel that what is lacking among uh, many uh, churches today, various forms of denominations, is that they aren't going back to sort of the bedrock of the original uh, experience and preaching of the gospel and response to it. So for example, in the book of Acts, I've already talked about the day of Pentecost, uh, people witnessing all these uh, Jews speaking in other tongues, uh, Peter, got, Peter began to preach to them about the gospel and they, Ask him, uh, they were convicted when they heard that message, and he said, and they said to him, Well, what should we do? And Peter's answer is very telling in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He said, Repent, which means to turn from your sins, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins or the washing away, forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Packed into that response is sort of a, a threefold uh, experience, turning, turning from your sins, uh, being sorrowful, turning direction from the, the sinful lifestyle. Secondly, to be baptized, this is Christian initiation, for the washing away of, this, of one's sins in the name of Jesus, which is... Uh, uh, consistent throughout the book of Acts, that's the baptismal uh, mode, the calling of the calling upon of the name of Jesus. It's a practice not really not that many churches are doing, comparatively speaking, using the name of Jesus in baptism. And then uh, the third component of that of that response by the apostle Peter, who had the key, was given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus was that you shall receive this gift of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, this is a promise uh, 
not just to you, but to people who are, are far away, probably referring both geographically and in time. And so for me, that's, that's a timeless uh, message that I didn't, I never heard that growing up in the denominational church near my, uh, near my hometown. Um, and I don't hear it really preached very often as the, as the way to respond to the preaching of the gospel. Um, uh, and to me that, that experience, which I already, you know, shared my own, uh, Acts 238 experience back in Boston, to me, that that is so incredibly transforming and powerful. Yeah, and the, a lot of people diluted it, watered it down, not not actually that's the that was that was the message by the apostles. Yeah. I think the ability to talk about a relatively or extremely like Christianity and to, to have that the ability to explain and the ability to go back um, like, like you do it every day, right? It isn't something that I feel that I come across randomly a lot. You know, I come across a lot of things on Twitter and some of them are really complicated. Say it's a coding, for instance, or phys physics, right? Some of this stuff is incredibly complicated. I can't even wrap my mind around it. But I come across it. It seems like these these specifics and the depth of religion it's missing and it, obviously you need to tease it you can't just get in the door with this but i think there's a huge appeal that people see okay there is all this this knowledge there and it, it's it's been with the church for so long but it's easily accessible for you you don't have to necessarily follow those rules because this is your journey in the end right so it's you you invest as much as you want to get out of it but this it isn't something I would associate with, with with organized religion where I live in San Francisco or anywhere in California. It is literally you go to a church on Christmas. You don't really know what's going on. Most of the time, the service is relatively boring. Not on Christmas. is usually a lot of excitement from the children. But that's what I associate with religion. But then there's all what I learned about religion, which is so much more interesting. But I never access it through that organized religion. Maybe that's my fault. It could be, right? But a lot of people give me that feedback about childhood religious schools where they were taught, at least what they were, what they understood, is, you know, this is the, this is the there's there's a very narrowed down children's book version that's not. I don't know, it doesn't put Christianity in the best light, but that's what seemingly a lot of people understand and remember. But there's a lot of the, the I'd say, intelligentsia these days, intellectuals, that, that seem to remember those things, but not the great part about theology. And I don't know where this, where this comes from, but there seems to be a wild gulf in between. And I don't see this with physics. So we all have like some, some physics we learned in, in, in high school or before that, we remember that and we realize, okay, this is really stupid, right? There's much more to it. There's not just Newtonian, there's Einsteinian physics, there's quantum physics, and they all lay on top of it. And we understand that immediately, or it seems to be no, no gulf, at least out there. But theology, there seems to be this gulf. And I don't know if it can be resolved. Maybe what you just said that we've explained more might, might change the story a little bit. Yeah, so so Pentecostalism is, is sort of a restorationist uh, branch of Christianity that says we need to go all the way back to the bedrock, to the beginning. You know, here's, here's what the early church practiced. Here's what the early church preached. This is their message when, when Jesus, the message of Jesus 
dying for our sins on the cross and raising again from the dead was preached. That's the gospel. How should people respond? What, what is this sort of the initiation uh, into this, uh, if you want to call it religion? Uh, and there's been all kinds of answers to that question over the intervening years of church dogma and, and established religion and so forth. Pentecostalism says, let's, let's go all the way back to these, these inspired documents. Let's go back to the owner's manual, so to speak, and let's see what they did back then. What made that early church so dynamic where there's miracles going on and um, explosive growth and power, you know, uh, powerful dynamics and so forth. And I think, I think that's, for me, that's one of the key, uh, key missing components is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And as you read across the book of Acts, you'll find numerous examples where that was the expected uh, initiation rite, so to speak, to come into the, into the church. Uh, putting your faith in Jesus, uh, repenting of your sins, undergoing baptism in the name of Jesus, and then uh, receiving the, 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 the Spirit with this, if you want to call it a supernatural sign, a miracle of speaking in a language you, you never learned. Uh, and, and to me, that, that was such a, uh, a, a huge thing when I, when I moved to Boston and I, and, I, and I had that experience. It was like, what have I been, I can't believe I've been missing this all my life. I, I went, you know, I grew up in a very well-known uh, denomination and I, I, didn't, I never heard that. I didn't know about this. So, yeah, I do, I do think that uh, the answer is in a return to scripture, going, going back to the book and uh, reading about what the early church was like without years and years of, in uh, many cases, human tradition, just stifling, stifling the dynamics of the early church. Yeah, I can only recommend, and I've probably done this way too late in my life, but reading the original text, taking the time to read the Old Testament, the New Testament and the Quran was such a revelation to me. Um, I, I really enjoyed it and I, 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 you can get People think it's this crazy, complicated document. It's not, right? Especially the New Testament is so easy to read. It's like a novel almost. The Old Testament, I felt, is a little harder, and so is the Quran. But the Quran is more like a poem. You've got to like it or not. But it's, it's beautiful to read, and the experience you'll, you'll have is way better than going to church service. That was, that was my personal experience. And um, there is something magical about these old documents. If, 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 yes. And it doesn't take a lot of time. It takes literally the same time as reading... I don't know, maybe a thousand page book. And there's a lot of thousand page books that people read through novels. It's really not a hard job. And it, that if we could convince, and I know where people have fallen out with books everywhere, but if there's a medium that we can, we can get people to see at least part of that, I think they appreciate a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, read, for me, reading the Bible is exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when I first got a copy of the New Testament when I was about 19, 20 years old and started reading, I was just blown away. Uh, I started reading the Gospels and uh, it, it was a powerful 
experience just simply reading the you know the Bible without uh, reading a just necessarily reading about the Bible. Reading the Bible itself uh, is powerful. Yeah, it has this this personal impact on you. It's kind of I don't know, maybe it's the, the writing style or maybe it's just because it's such a genius document. Each of those are pretty genius. You, you are able to, you see a reflection of yourself. I, everyone sees something else. It's like a mirror, right? So you, you, you have, this, it, people have this idea of this, this top-down command structure and this is what you need to do. Well, yes, Deuteronomy is like this, but 99% of the Old Testament, no, it's all kinds of stories about people that you would meet in your life that do that are struggling with moral decisions. We still struggle with moral decisions. We haven't really changed anything. Yes, we have science, but it doesn't tell us much about morals generally. There's exceptions, obviously. And this, nobody knows that. I, I, this is such so basic, right? I mean, a lot of people that I know that, that were raised Catholic, they've never really read the Bible. And if they did, they were like 12 years old. And yes, I mean, I didn't understand any of this when I was 12 years old, it's hopeless. But say when you're 30, and I'm not saying you should be, you should be forced to do so, but just in, that, in a certain early mature age, you should just take the time to read it. It's, it changed my life, and I think it will change other lives. It doesn't mean I became religious and I'm, I go to church every day. No, I don't. That was reflected. Yeah, you just cut out uh, for a second. Uh... But yeah, I think a lot of people perceive the Bible, especially those who haven't read it, as this dusty, old, archaic book that's not rele relevant to life today. And and find when they start to crack it open and just read uh, how amazing it is and how uh, profoundly relevant it is. And, and you're exactly right. The Bible uh, is a collection of a lot of different genres or literary types. Uh, there's everything from, uh, you know, narrative to letters to prophetic works and on and on and on. But ultimately, it, to me, it's, it's, it makes for an exciting read, even, even at just the level of literature. Uh, I mean, we've all had the experience of reading, a, say, a novel, right, where we get so hooked where it's almost like time stops around us and we're uber focused on we're in we're in that story and and for me that reading the bible is is that way it's uh, it draws you in and uh you know god didn't uh choose to i mean he could have choose chosen a lot of ways to reveal himself but in essence he reveals himself through scripture as a story and I think it's helpful to think of, of the whole Bible as sort of a, well, the technical term is a meta-narrative. It's an overarching saga uh, of salvation. And it all, it all sort of fits together like a mosaic into a, uh, an incredible story of all the way from creation to the election of Israel to, to Jesus coming. And then finally, of course, the, the last book of the canon uh, looks to the 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 close the the uh end of end of time yeah maybe we we helped a little bit and inspired a couple of people i can only recommend that jeff thanks so much for coming thanks for doing this uh that was awesome i really enjoyed it um and i'm sure the listeners will do too
Well, thank you, Torsten. Uh, I really, really appreciate uh, this opportunity and was honored to, to be on your podcast. Absolutely. And I hope you get to do this again. Looking forward to it. Yep. Bye now.